I think it's a good experience to begin most spiritual exercises with the serenity prayer, asking God for help and trying to be awake and conscious. I was at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Dallas, Texas. This fellow was talking about the serenity prayer, and he said, uh, there's stuff we can change and there's stuff we can't change. What can't I change? And he said, well, I cannot change you, and I cannot change the past, and I cannot change the truth. I wrote that down. Then he said, what can I change? Well, I can change my behavior. I can change my thinking. And I can change my attitudes. I wrote that down too. I find that some of the troubles that I have on a daily basis is that I get all those things mixed up. I keep trying to change you. Uh, I would love to change the truth, and I would like to change the past so I look better. And it just doesn't work out like that. My name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. Also a drug addict and member of Al-Anon, and I'm one of those fellows who shouldn't gamble. Not that I have all that much, but with what I know, it's real clear that I shouldn't gamble. And uh, some of my younger friends tell me I should not do cocaine and I should not do crystal meth. They don't think that somebody with my delicate condition would handle crystal meth as well as I think I might handle crystal meth. So it is evidently an experience of deep powerlessness and deep crazy, which attracts me. I was at a conference in San Diego years and years and years ago, and they were doing a presentation. I was just quietly listening like a person does. They were doing a presentation on street drugs and what was going on in the street and what was being sold in the street and what it was costing and what the effects were. And they were having a, the experience in some of the free clinics and the emergency clinics. Uh, do we have free clinics anymore? I'm not sure, but we used to. But emergency rooms, young people, women and men in their 20s and 30s were coming in with all the signs of Parkinson's, advanced Parkinson's disease. And uh, Parkinson's is not an uncommon disease, but it's usually in older persons. You know, uh, 60, 70, 80 people get Parkinson's disease. But these were folks in their 20s and 30s. And so the medical people did some investigation, and they found that what all of these folks had in common is they were using certain street drugs. And this one particular street drug was uh, a cocaine that was 10 billion times stronger than the cocaine of last year. You know how science advances and humanity progresses. And uh, uh, these folks were doing it, and it just, it just made you completely wild and, and huge impact, but you did get Parkinson's within a short amount of time. Now, I've never done cocaine. Now, this is just a little reporting on my brain, okay? 
But all I could think of was 10 zillion times more powerful than what the other stuff used to be. I wonder where I could get some. Now, I'm sitting at a meeting which is a good place for people like me. And I'm surrounded by people in recovery which is a good place for people like me because left to my own devices, I get interested in exotic things. That, and then of course there's always Parkinson's, but that's not today, see that's later. That's next month. What I'm interested in is the instant crazy. And I had to turn to the fellow I was with and I just said, I want you to know my brain is running in 300 directions about what we've just heard. So my craziness is clear. I'm, I'm self-destructive and I'm self-obsessed. Um, I haven't had a drink since Gerald Ford was president of the United States. Uh, you young persons can look him up and find out when that was. But my understanding is I am more alcoholic today than I have ever been in my whole life. My alcoholism has not gone away, it's advanced. Thinking, emotional reactions, deadly. What I have had the good fortune of developing, however, over the last 30 plus years, are some tools to use some friends, companions, and allies I can rely on, and some ways of handling me at my craziest. And for that, I'm very grateful for the fellowship and the steps and the traditions. And I'd like to spend the talks we have today and tomorrow talking about fellowship, steps, and traditions. My point of view, my experience. If, if there's anything I say that's helpful, please use it. And if it's not helpful, don't worry about it. Um, also, uh, for if you're, you're new to recovery, you'll find that uh, there are all kinds of different points of view. I'm going to present mine. There are other points of view. And um, um, you get to hear, well, I was told, go to meetings until you hear someone tell your story. I find that helpful. My sponsor, who is a hopeless alcoholic of the worst kind, uh, thinks that if you're at a meeting and you identify with what's going on, you're in a pretty good place. If you're at a meeting and you're horrified by what's going on, you might need another meeting. Um, where people like me get into trouble is when I get into trouble when I think I am unique, special, and different. And what works for you does not work for me. And what helps you is not going to help me because I am unique, special, and different. Dave picked me up at the airport yesterday in Lafayette and uh, he was waiting for me because he knows if I have time on my hands, I have a tendency to end up in a bar. So he's waiting for me. And um, on the way 
to where he dropped me off in Grand Coteau at uh, the Jesuit house there, we were talking a bit, and one of the great freedoms of the program is we focus on what connects us and we don't focus on what doesn't connect us. A lot of us are a little cranky and a lot of us are a little difficult and a lot of us have strong opinions and a lot of us have different backgrounds and if we're not careful, we'll focus on that stuff and then we end up with fist fights and people being shoved downstairs. So the conscious choice we make over time is we're not going to talk about political stuff. We don't talk about religious denominational stuff. And outside controversial issues stay outside. Because our points of view will be different. 9-11 happened back in 2001 on a Tuesday. And my home group is Tuesday night in Oakland, California at 6.30. Uh, the AA Central Office in Oakland had been in the same place for 25 years. And then they moved it. Have you ever noticed how well alcoholics handle change? <laughs> there are some people who refuse to go to the new central office because it's not the old central office. And among the craziest, they will talk about the real central office and then the one we have now. But the real one <laughs> was 2910 Telegraph for years and years and years. My first meeting was there and so forth. Anyway, so we finally got people settled down into a new central office. And then they changed the chairs. And there are people who won't come back because the chairs are different. That's how we are. Anyway, 9-11 happened. And, and on the West Coast, uh, I think the first plane hit the towers at 9 a.m. in New York. Well, it was 6 a.m. I wake up. So we watched it and, and disaster and chaos and no explanation. We just heard there's trouble here. There's trouble here. And we don't know what's going on yet, but it is a huge, big shock to us as a people. And I went to an AA meeting that night, confused and disturbed and upset, but I didn't have any... I, I can be confused disturbed and upset for days without any particular focus. So there we were, and I was at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and there was a, a young woman who was chairing the meeting. The way we do things in my part of California, Dave, and I, I don't want to point out all of his defects of character, but Dave, um, yes, would say, well, in California, and I said, that's Southern California. We don't even talk to those people. We're Northern California. It's a big state. It's like mixing up Lafayette and Shreveport. I mean, they're not the same, you know. Oh, Louisiana. So, anyway, in some California things, there are always these big fancy speaker meetings. We don't do that where I live. It's kind of an hour-long sharing meeting. Someone shares for 15 or 20 minutes, and then others pitch in and give their opinion. So it's kind of, of a, a more informal gathering. The young woman who was sharing that night said, uh, I'm feeling lots of feelings. And I know that there's some really big stuff going on outside those doors. Big stuff. 
chaos and upheaval and excitement and drama. She said, but I'm not going to talk about that tonight. The format of Alcoholics Anonymous is to talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, to focus on recovery and to leave the outside things outside. She said, I want you to know that in saying that, I feel really foolish because my story is so insignificant and it's so petty and it's so small, but it's all I have. And she proceeded to share her story about how her alcoholism developed and grew and how she got sober and what she was doing. Now, I, I want you to know this. I don't remember her name. I don't remember what she looked like other than she was a young woman. Uh, but I remember what she said. And I thought she was observing the traditions. We're not going to talk about some stuff. We're going to focus on what we have in common as alcoholics and addicts. And then for the topic that night, you know, we want a topic that's AA-related. She said, for a topic, what steps do you take when your world blows up and falls down? What steps do you take? Well, people started sharing on that, and person after person said, when my world explodes, falls down, crashes, I want to find safe people and I want to find safe places. The room was full that night. First times I started going to AA meetings, I was 29 years old. I'm now 63, just in case you're wondering. Uh, and I have lived every day of those 63 years. Uh, but I was 29 years old, and I would go to meetings, and I'd feel better. Meetings where there was laughter, there was, there was conviviality, there was companionship, a lot of upbeat people at meetings. And I kind of concluded that you, meant to, you went to meetings when you felt good, and when you were at meetings, you felt better. A couple months passed. I'd had a really bad day. Everything was awful. I was surrounded by mindless swine. Perhaps you've had that experience yourselves on occasions. Idiots are everywhere. Who are these people? I hope they don't vote. And, um, uh, and it was raining. And I, I was living in Berkeley. I was going to school in Berkeley, which is just next to Oakland. And it's across a very long bridge from San Francisco. We just stare at the people in San Francisco. We don't like them. Uh, we just stare at them. And uh, anyway, it was I was feeling awful. And it was an awful day. And it was pouring rain. And my brain said, the weather is so bad, I bet no one will be at the meeting. And I'm not feeling good, so I don't want to go to a meeting. I don't want to go to a bunch of happy people and say, I'm having a bad day. But I was having a bad day, and I was having such a bad day that I really needed a meeting. And it was raining, and I got down there. And much to my surprise, there were more people in the room than usual. And I came to realize, you know, the safe people, safe places, when you're feeling really good, Safe people, safe places. When I'm feeling really bad, self, uh, safe people, safe places. Where I'm in trouble is when I'm isolated, 
giving myself advice and thinking things through on my own. I make bad decisions. And I don't want to shock you, but I have made many bad decisions in my life. <laughs> oh, my. When I'm under stress, I have a tendency to not talk about it. I want to keep a secret. I want to try harder. And I kind of want to hunker down so no one sees me. Those are my tendencies, especially when things fall apart. What I've learned in recovery is stand up, say hello, reach out. Don't keep it secret. Don't keep it secret. So I've learned to talk about uncomfortable things, and, and this takes time. And we do. The first step talks about uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's a big conversation, and some of us find that very difficult to have that conversation. We throw a lot of effort into looking good, being on top, looking in charge, you know. Appearances are everything. Don't air your dirty laundry. Is that the phrase? You don't air... Show your dirty laundry, air your dirty linen, something like that. But family secrets should stay family secrets. We don't talk about these things. And, of course, then it just gets crazier and crazier. It occurred to me, uh, fairly new in recovery, that part of the recovery process is taking some of this dark secret, isolated stuff, taking it out and holding it up to where it gets sunlight and fresh air. And a lot of times speaking at a meeting is sunlight and fresh air. And healing happens over time. And this is a process of healing. And the healing is ongoing. This is our, in alcohol, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I want to say I'm mostly an alcoholic, but I, uh, that's hard to determine. I mean, I self-destructive, self-obsessed, and pushy. Um, is that alcoholism? Um, I also have a, a tiny tendency to uh, to the drug world. I, I was a marijuana smoker for a long time, and then I wondered why I was so depressed. I was pretty sure it was because of the president. Um, <laughs> At the time, you know, and, and we change them so you can always get a new resentment. I like that. Um, and But I used to have a terrible time with Mr. Johnson. Whenever he spoke, I'd get drunk. And then I had a terrible time with Mr. Nixon. Whenever he spoke, I'd get drunk. And so it was, it was pathetic. Um, and I have a lot of family craziness. All the Al-Anon stuff applies to me as an adult child of alcoholics. So I'm, I know there are people from different 12-step programs who are here. You're all welcome. Everyone's welcome. Here's my, my, my thinking. Um, the 12-step programs are friends and allies. We're not the enemy. Everyone's welcome. 
But for clarity's sake and simplicity's sake, when I'm at an AA meeting, I speak AA. When I'm at an Al-Anon meeting, I speak Al-Anon. When I'm at an NA meeting, I speak NA. Because that's the language of the country I'm visiting. And, and if you follow that rule of thumb, you'll have fewer fistfights at meetings. That's just been my experience. But this is the 75th anniversary of the, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thought this morning in, in the first talk I want to talk a little bit about our founders, Dr. Bob and Bill, and how they meet, because uh, we are an historical organization. We, we uh, develop over time, and we develop in great desperation. I'm one of those people that reads books and... and um, If you want to get a, a different understanding of American people, North American people, uh, there are some books that have been written recently uh, on prohibition. One was written some 10 years ago, Prohibition 13 Years That Changed America by Edward Beer. Uh, this was the first thing I really read on the subject, and he talks about all of those wonderful years from 1920 to 1933 when we outlawed alcohol in the United States. It was a chaotic period. The new book out on the same period, and it is brilliant, is called Last Call by Daniel Okrent, O-K-R-E-N-T, and he takes a, a very deep look at the American psyche and how this works in the 19-teens and 20s and how it didn't work in so many ways. The reason it's interesting is that Dr. Bob and Bill do the last 10 years of their drinking during Prohibition. So they were very familiar with the speakeasy and the bootlegger. And that nice Mr. Capone and all of his friends in Chicago, Al Capone, when he was finally uh, uh, picked up on, on tax evasion, I think, uh, they asked Mr. Capone, and he was, he was in his late 20s, early 30s when he's running Chicago. He said, Mr. Capone, uh, how do you see your, your uh, life? He said, all I did was provide people a service. <laughs> well, yes. Um, Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob Smith is a shy and awkward man doesn't like public speaking, didn't like public anything, very private. Um, he and his wife uh, lived in Akron, Ohio, and what he wanted to do in Akron, Ohio was have a, an ordinary life. He's a secret drinker. Didn't drink in bars, but the bootlegger would provide alcohol and he would pick it up. And this is how he talks about his own stuff a little bit. This is in the AA Big Book, and it's uh, the story entitled Dr. Bob's Nightmare. By the way, if you're going to AA meetings and you're only reading up to page 164, you'll never meet Dr. Bob. So stretch a little, you know? Um, in his story, he talks about 
different things. Um, after high school came four years in one of the best colleges in the country where drinking seemed to be a major extracurricular activity. This is before the turn of the last century, but um, I hear occasionally college students still drink in the United States. <laughs> Perhaps even at LSU, although I'm not sure of that. Page 172. Almost everyone seemed to do it. Everyone seemed to drink. I did it more and more and had lots of fun without much grief. And I'll tell you, that has been my experience in so many ways in early alcoholism. It's a lot of fun and not much grief. So why not do it? This really helped. My idea of a good time was alcohol. If alcohol was present, we're going to get along just fine. Evidently, that's not ev uh, true with crystal meth. <laughs> just listening to people. Um, if you are doing crystal meth for three or four or five days and not eating or peeing, um, you tend to chase people around with baseball bats in the middle of the afternoon, like on Thursday afternoon, you get arrested. It's not fun. It's not fun. No one's having a good time with you. <laughs> Almost everyone seemed to do it. I did it more and more and had lots of fun without grief, either physical or financial. I seemed to be able to snap back the next morning better than most of my fellow drinkers who were cursed with a great deal of mourning after nausea. And then this shocking statement from Dr. Bob's story, never once in my life have I had a headache. Which, which fact leads me to believe that I was an alcoholic from almost the start. My whole life seemed to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anyone else. I'll repeat that line. My whole life seemed to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anybody else. This is called being self-centered. If you're crazy and dangerous, this is called self-will-run riot. It's a recipe for disaster. A state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. I was graduated summa cum laude, you know, with highest honors in the eyes of the drinking fraternity, but not in the eyes of the dean. So his grades weren't, now this is a guy who's going to be a doctor, I hope that doesn't make you nervous, but he's, he's not really, and then next three years I spent in Boston, Chicago, Montreal, in the employ of a large manufacturing concern, doing a whole bunch of things. My next move was to take up the study of medicine, entering one of the largest universities in the country. There I took up the business of drinking with much greater earnestness than I had previously shown. On account of my enormous capacity for beer, I was elected to membership in one of the drinking societies and soon became one of the leading spirits. Many mornings I have gone to classes, even though fully prepared, 
I would turn and walk back to the fraternity house because of my jitters, not daring to enter the classroom for fear of making a scene should I be called on for recitation. So it's not as much fun. The jitters, the shakes, the queasiness. Stage one alcoholism is fun. Stage two alcoholism, fun plus problems. It's still fun, but you start to have problems like not being able to get into the classroom door. And when you're in medical school, this is a problem. This went from bad to worse until sophomore spring when, after a prolonged period of drinking, I made up my mind that I could not complete my course, so I packed my grip and went south to spend a month on a large farm owned by a friend of mine. Now, he's from Vermont, so south probably could be Connecticut, you know, that's what, but it, when I got the fog out of my brain, I decided that quitting school was very foolish and that I had better return and continue my work. When I reached school, I discovered the faculty had other ideas on the subject. It doesn't even occur to him that he has to deal with the faculty. After much argument, they allowed me to return and take my exams, all of which I passed credibly. We're not stupid. But they were much disgusted and told me they would attempt to struggle along without my presence. <laughs> After many painful discussions, they finally gave me my credits, and I migrated to another of the leading universities of the country and entered as a junior that fall. There my drinking, this is page 174, there my drinking became so much worse that the boys in the fraternity house where I lived felt forced to send for my father. When the boys in the fraternity house think you're drinking bad, you're drinking bad. It's kind of like when your bartender suggests AA to you. You're distinguishing yourself in a very real way. This had little effect anyway. Final exams, sprees, disaster, chaos, physical problems, fun, fun plus problems, stage three alcoholism, problems, problems. Uh, it's not fun at all, but you're doing it all the time. And you can't seem to not do it. With the passing of the 18th Amendment, Prohibition, I felt quite safe. I knew everyone would buy a few bottles or cases of liquor as their exchequers permitted and that it would soon be gone. This was the naive theory. All the booze is going to be gone and we'll be a completely dry country. America will be saved. Thank you, America. The, the political group behind this, by the way, is the Anti-Saloon League, led by a guy named Wayne P. Wheeler, who was a very powerful political figure. Uh, the 
Anti-Saloon League was as powerful a lobby as the National Rifle Association. Wayne P. Wheeler had as much clout as some of the radio personalities on today. You know, they say something and many, many respond. That was Wayne P. Wheeler. And the issue was outlawing alcohol, outlawing alcohol, passing a constitutional amendment to save the country. And you, it has to pass the House and the Senate, and then it goes to all the states. In one election for the House, Wayne P. Wheeler listed the name of 70 congressmen. He said, I want these men defeated. Every one was defeated. That's power. He controlled two or three congresses and two or three presidents. Amazing. And the country will be saved. Everyone would buy a little bit of booze. It would soon be gone. And then Dr. Bob, who thinks just like I do, an alcoholic, therefore it would make no great difference even if I should do some drinking. See, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be gone. Let's have some now. At that time, I was not aware of the almost unlimited supply the government made it possible for us doctors to obtain. Doctors, there was alcohol for medicinal usages, and each patient could get so much alcohol per month with a doctor's prescription. So doctors had access to alcohol. Also, Catholic priests did and rabbis did because alcohol for sacramental purposes was just fine. And in New York City, suddenly there were thousands of rabbis. <laughs> thousands of rabbis. Neither had I any knowledge of the bootlegger who soon appeared on the horizon, the dealer. You know, they just, they show up on the Bahamas, Jamaica, uh, Canada, Mexico. Instead of bringing in cocaine and marijuana, they were bringing in alcohol. And the huge distilleries were made in Canada, and it would be shipped down into the United States from Vancouver into Detroit uh, through New England. There was a huge smuggling operation, all of it, of course, tax-free. The bootlegger. I drank with moderation at first, but it took me only a relatively short time to drift back into the old habits which round up so disastrously before. One of the things that's true with people like me, there can be periods when we look like we've cleaned up our act, but it doesn't last. We get worse, never better, over any considerable period of time. During the next few years, I developed two distinct phobias. One was the fear of not sleeping. That's terrifying. I have to sleep. I've had that one. I've got to sleep. I'm teaching in the morning. I have to sleep. What am I going to do? A couple of drinks. A pipe or two. That'll help. When I was... I don't want to shock you, but they locked me up for treatment, I who was handling everything so well. And none of us were sleeping. We were just... They had a lady come in. I don't think it was every night, but it was frequently. And she would do yoga. 
And, and she'd get all of us extremely wired, folks, breathing, stretching, breathing, stretching, and people would get to sleep. One was the fear of not sleeping, and the other was the fear of running out of liquor. There's not enough. It's prohibition. There's not enough. Now, I lived in a Jesuit house. I never had the fear of running out of liquor. It is an endless supply. Not being a man of means, I knew that if I did not stay sober enough to earn money, I'd run out of liquor. Most of the time, therefore, I did not take the morning drink, which I craved so badly, but instead would fill up on large doses of sedatives to quiet the jitters. He's a doctor. He would take handfuls of pills. I know some people who haven't got to this part of the big book yet. You can't mention pills. Try page 176 of the big book. Occasionally I would yield to the morning craving, but if I did, it would be only a few hours before I'd be quite unfit for work. This would lessen my chances of smuggling some home that evening, which in turn would meet a night of futile tossing around in bed, followed by a morning of unbearable jitters. During the subsequent 15 years, I had sense enough never to go to the hospital if I'd been drinking. But he's got a 15-year pill problem. And very seldom did I receive patients. I would sometimes hide out in one of the clubs of which I was a member, private club, hide out, and I had the habit at times of registering at a hotel under a fictitious name. This is Dr. Bob Smith. What fictitious name do you think he used? My suspicion is that he signed himself in as Eleanor Roosevelt. Because he looked a little like Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, and no one would have raised a question. But my friends usually found me, and I would go home if they promised that I should not be scolded. Scolded? He's like a little boy. I heard this at an Al-Anon gathering not long ago. A father and son are talking, and the son says, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be an alcoholic. And Daddy says, Son, you can't do both. In 1933, prohibition is repealed. It's repealed for taxes to help pay us through the Depression. It wasn't repealed because it was a disaster. It wasn't repealed because it didn't work. It was repealed because the country was in economic straits and the DuPont family and several others decided if we don't do something to raise taxes, they're going to tax the rich. And so we're going to legalize alcohol, we will tax alcohol, and that will get us out of the Depression. That's how it worked. It worked real fast. Even in terms of 1930, people never thought uh, prohibition would be repealed. But by 1932, it was a movement to do it. 
And Mr. Roosevelt, the first thing they do is they pass a law taxing beer. Mr. Roosevelt puts it into, signs it into law, and he says this is the first time in the history of the republic that the passage of a tax has been met with cheering and, and beer was suddenly available. So Dr. Bob writes this, and this is on page 177 bottom of the page, for the benefit of those experimentally inclined, and who among us isn't experimentally inclined? Let's try different things. I should mention the so-called beer experiment. When beer first came back, 1933, I felt, I thought I was safe. I could drink all I wanted of that. It was harmless. Nobody ever got drunk on beer. And that's in the big book. But you know it's, it's, his, it's his alcoholism talking to him. Beer is alcohol. And what I've noticed, and this is an observation, if you've got a, a bad alcohol problem, well, I've stopped drinking, a lot of us shift over to something else. Marijuana, Valium, Librium, we get into the world of drugs. You'll go back to alcohol. Clean and sober. Clean and sober. Or we're in trouble. I met a fellow who was off heroin, former student of mine. He was off heroin but drinking beer. And I said, this doesn't bode well. Your main thing is heroin. You're back on beer. You'll end up back on heroin. Clean and sober seems to me. Nobody ever got drunk on beer, so I filled the cellar full with the permission of my good wife. Please, 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 please. It was not long before I was drinking at least a case and a half a day. I put on 30 pounds of weight in about two months, looked like a pig, and was uncomfortable from shortness of breath. Now, this is a medical man. He's, he's alert, he's aware, he's paying attention. It then occurred to me, this is science at work, it then occurred to me that after one was all smelled up with beer, nobody could tell what had been drunk, so I began to fortify my beer with straight alcohol. And then the scientist gives the report, of course the result was very bad. <laughs> and that ended the beer experiment. Now it's 1933 and he is in desperate shape. Fun, fun plus problems, problems. He reaches out for help, he tries reading everything on alcoholism. He knows he's an alcoholic. And so many people have opinions on alcohol and alcoholism and all that whole world. Church folks have a zillion opinions. Political folks have a zillion opinions. So many people have ways of talking about this. And he tries to reach out for everything he can. He's a desperate man. Now one of the things I've noticed in recovery. We have learned that desperation is good. If you're really desperate, you might be willing to follow directions. I was talking to 
a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous who was pretty stressed out, surrounded by alcoholics and other charming types, and she was crazed and full of rage, and she wondered if she should go to Al-Anon, which is an organization for uh, friends and family of alcoholics. And I said, how miserable are you? And she said, pretty miserable. I said, hold out as long as you can. <laughs> and if you're really miserable, Al-Anon will look good to you. If you're not miserable enough, you won't like them and they won't like you. If you're really desperate, that doesn't matter. You're there to live. About the time of the beer experiment, I was thrown in with a crowd of people who attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. They spoke with great freedom from embarrassment. Interesting. Dr. Bob hated public speaking. And he notices these women and men, they spoke with great freedom from embarrassment, which I could never do. And they seemed very much at ease on all occasions and appeared very healthy. This is the doctor. And he's aware that he is a nervous wreck and on the edge of collapse. And he notices this lovely bunch of people that freely talk, seem to accept themselves, and seem happy. What, a, what an amazing thing. More than these attributes, they seem to be happy. I was self-conscious. Me, 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 me. My hands are too big. I'm too short. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. I'm too tall. Me, 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 me. Self-conscious. They won't like me. I won't like them. They won't like me. What about me? What about me? What about me? Self-conscious. Any of you recognize that one? <sighs> <laughs> I was self-conscious and ill at ease most of the time. My health was at the breaking point, and I was thoroughly miserable. Fun, fun, plus problems, problems. I sensed they had something I did not have from which I might readily profit. I learned that it was something of a spiritual nature, which, I did, which did not appeal to me very much. Dr. Bob was never really pro-church. Uh, when he was a kid, his mom made him go to church 300 times a day. And he decided, I'm never doing that again. Something of a spiritual nature which did not appeal to me very much, but I thought it could do me no harm. And this is a physician. And when you take the Hippocratic Oath, the first thing you do, you know, first, in general, as a principle, as a rule, do no harm. It's not going to hurt. I'm going to try it. It won't hurt. Should I go to meetings? It won't hurt. Give it a try. See. 90 meetings in 90 days. It won't hurt. Don't drink in between meetings. It won't hurt. See. I gave the matter much time and study for the next two and a half years. Time, study, two and a half years. Well, I went to one meeting and didn't like Two and a half years. This is a desperate man. But still got tight. 
got drunk every night, nevertheless. I read everything I could find and talked to everyone who I thought knew anything about it. This is a desperate man. Page 179. About this time, a lady called up my wife one Saturday afternoon saying she wanted me to come over that evening to meet a friend of hers who might help me. It was the day before Mother's Day, and I had come home plastered, carrying a big potted plant, which I set down on the table and forthwith went upstairs and passed out. The next day she called again. Wishing to be polite, though I felt very badly, I said, let's make the call and extracted from my wife a promise that we would not stay over 15 minutes. Dr. Bob, <laughs> he's so hungover. No headache, but that flu that kicked by a horse, feeling awful, feeling so badly. But he's a nice man and he's a doctor and you learn to be nice in New England. So you're going to comply, we'll do 15 minutes. I love the scene of coming home with a big potted plant. In uh, the central office in Oakland, we have a big potted plant. And um, I have told a couple of newcomers that that was Dr. Bob's potted plant. <laughs> it's not. But I want to see where this rumor will go. And my fantasy is that New York will call one day and want a cutting of Dr. Bob's potted plant. <laughs> there is a Swedish ivy that was in the room when Bill Wilson died, and you can get it for nine ninety-five or something. It's very, it's we're, we're like that, you know. A relic. Um, we entered her house at exactly five o'clock. And it was 11.15 when we left. This is the meeting. Bob, who's desperate, meets Bill, who's desperate. I'm going to say a few more things, and we're going to take a little break. I think there's an image in some circles where if you're full of strength and wisdom, you seek out others who are full of strength and wisdom, and you form cute little groups full of strength and wisdom. And I'm real grateful that's not how we do it. Um, any 12-step program worth its salt is full of desperate people. Broken, crazy, self-obsessed, self-destructive, wild folks. And they meet because they have to. Desperation meets desperation. It's not the sleek and the comfortable and the well-rounded that make up our meetings most of the time. Most of us are rather on edge. <laughs> and I think that's good news. The poet Rumi, R-U-M-I, will tell us uh, it is through the broken places that the light shines through. It's through the broken places that the light 
shines through. And one of the things that happens with us, the women and men who gather in 12-step programs, it's our brokenness brings us together and light shines. It's a great gift. Let's take a bit of a break, stretch, pee, smoke. Come back in about 15 minutes and uh, uh, talk. I, I, I talked a little bit about Dr. Bob, and he's such an interesting human being. Um, he dies in 1950. His wife dies in 1949. And uh, a lot of people, therefore, don't know that much about him because Bill Wilson lived much longer and Bill Wilson was a much louder guy. Bill Wilson would talk to anybody about anything, whether he knew anything about it or not. Uh, there's even a little book called As Bill Sees It, where he has an opinion on everything, you know. Bill, what about the moon and, and green cheese? Yes, 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 and he would talk about it. Um, you, there is no book called As Dr. Bob Sees It because he was a man of few words. Uh, one of his major contributions to recovery, as Bill would get very complicated, uh, Dr. Bob would tell him, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Dr. Bob was an introverted fellow. And introverts think a lot. They think and think and think and think. Don't say much. And then once they have figured stuff out, they'll announce the results. So you've been married to an introvert for years, not a lot of communication. Suddenly she says, I'm leaving. And you say, why didn't you tell me? How long have you been thinking about this? 20 years. <laughs> but I didn't really decide until this morning and I wanted to let you know right away. Uh, and it, it's just such a shock. What's going on in the minds of introverts? Um, they tend to be quiet and observant. Now, I have friends who are introverts and I've observed them. I'm more extroverted myself. And extroverts, we tend to think out loud. We just talk about stuff. Well, we talk about X and Y and blue and green and alligators and crawfish. And then, after we've bloviated for 15 or 20 minutes, we come to a conclusion and then we can, because we process things out loud, we can let you know our conclusion. Drives introverts crazy. Because they're listening to us all the way, because they think we mean everything we say. And we don't mean everything we say. We're just thinking out loud. And our first 20 minutes is thinking out loud. I'll tell you when you should pay attention to me. Um, but last night you said I was just talking. Just talking. So Bill is very much the extrovert. Talk, 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 talk about a lot of stuff. Thinking out loud. Processing things. Dr. Bob thinks about stuff a lot and then comes up with a conclusion. And they were great talking, listening, talking, listening. Uh, Bill meets Bob. One sponsors the other. These are the first two guys. 
And how does sponsorship work in the early days? Well, one talked and the other listened. And then the other talked and the other listened. That's kind of how it worked. And they would call each other on their crap. They would discuss. They would have points of view and they would exchange them. Dr. Bob's in bad trouble. There's a couple of things about alcoholism that you really should know. Dr. Bob had read a lot, but there were some of the basics he didn't get. Bill Wilson is a charismatic, vibrant fellow. Evidently, when he would come into a room, he could fill up the whole room. Charm, um, scheme, um, uh, manipulation. He was a salesman. Uh, but not just that. I, I was in a meeting in Southern California. I'll go to meetings in Southern California. I, I don't like anybody in their meetings, but I go and I stare at them and wonder why they don't do it the way I was raised. Um, they're different down there. Um, and there was a guy at the meeting who was from uh, Ohio. Akron. Birthplace of Alcoholics Anonymous, which he informed us of. And then uh, he went on to say how the real heart and soul of the program was Dr. Bob. And how Bill W. was nothing but a salesman. Nothing but a salesman. Now... Trust me, I am someone who is familiar with resentments. And I can hear a resentment across the room. And that struck me is that this little fella from Akron who knew so much had a chip on his shoulder about Bill W. Nothing but a salesman. The way someone explained it was uh, if Bill Wilson was the only guy doing things, AA would be franchised like McDonald's. You know, everywhere there's a place and everyone's making money. If Dr. Bob had been the only guy, it never would have left Akron. The two of them add insight and savvy and practicality. The genius of Bill Wilson is he could make something practical. The genius of Dr. Bob is he could keep him practical. Bill's a bad drunk. That, that glory of desperation. I, desperate folks seek out desperate folks. Bill's hospitalized for the third time that year. And they have to detox him, and detox is rough. Hospital detoxification. Uh, people are concerned. Lois is concerned. They think that his mind has been affected. Uh, brain damage, maybe he needs to be hospitalized. He really shouldn't be on his own. Uh, I've had friends like that. You know, they leave the stove on. Um, you're not sure this is wrong, that's wrong. They, they forget to take their medication. There's brain damage. Not enough, but enough to cause great problems. In the hospital, Bill W. meets 
Dr. William Silkworth. He's a physician who loves alcoholics. Now, I, I don't want to shock you, but most physicians don't love alcoholics. Most nurses don't like alcoholics. Why? Well, aren't we charming and interesting? No. We are, we are stubborn uh, pains in the butt. And what we do is we lie. We don't follow directions, and then we blame you. And we blame real loudly. We'll go all over town blaming the doctor for X, Y, and Z. And so most physicians don't like us. They don't want anything to do with us. I was talking to a doctor years and years ago. And I said, okay, um, you know, kind of the, the daily work of a priest, the daily work of a doctor, there are some similarities and some differences. So we're comparing things. And, and this physician who, who had a, a number of patients, he said, uh, you know, most of my patients are pretty easy to deal with. But 90% of my time is taken up with 10% of my patients. And some of them tend to be alcoholics who don't, follow directions and lie and then blame you. Dr. Silkworth loved alcoholics and developed a knack for working with us. We didn't wear him out. I met a physician from Utah whose wife was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and this physician talked about it. He was a Jewish physician. Um, working in Utah, and he, his wife was this beautiful woman, and he said, let me tell you what it's like being a Jewish doctor with an alcoholic wife. He said, a doctor is supposed to be able to take care of his own family. I did not see my wife's alcoholism. I was blind to her alcoholism. I can't tell you the shame this filled me with. I could not help the woman I loved, and it made me crazy. Well, that seems to be the rule. A lot of us can't help the people we love. If you're emotionally wrapped up in someone, you can't help them much with their alcoholism. That's why parents really can't help their kids. They can help someone else's kids, but they can't help their own. That's why Alateen saves lives. You're talking to someone else's parents. When I was a kid, I couldn't talk to my own parents for a hundred different reasons, but I could talk to the parents of friends of mine. And we talked about everything passionately, politics and art and religion and science. And, but when I went home, I had nothing to say with my own folks. Parents and kids don't always get along. I wish that weren't true, but it seems to be true. Someone explained to me that one of the reasons that grandparents and grandchildren get along so well is they have a common enemy. <laughs> but we worry about kids. We worry about our kids. We worry about all... Anyway, Dr. Silkworth, back to Dr. Silkworth. Silkworth worked with thousands of alcoholics before he met Bill Wilson. So he wasn't learning on Bill Wilson. He already had some skills down. And Silkworth is the one who tells him that alcoholism is an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. You're allergic and obsessed. You need that combination. Some of us might be allergic, but we're not obsessed. 
And I guess people can be obsessed and not allergic. I know some people who are great collectors of fancy wines. They're obsessed with it, and they don't seem to go to jail or pee on themselves. I, I find that <laughs> fascinating. Um, Dr. Silkworth writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcohol addiction. His words, 1939, alcohol addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcohol and drug addiction. There was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. A doctor saying this. Now, one of the problems with church people, and as a church person I can say this objectively, a lot of church people do a lot of church talk. And it's easy to get lost in church talk. And you're not really sure what they're talking about, but it's church talk. I've been to groups like that. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, there's grace and justification. and you know. What are you talking about? Medical people can do something very similar. There's medical talk. And you can get lost in terminology and references and footnotes. What happens in Alcoholics Anonymous is some very complicated medicine, philosophy, and theology gets talked about in ordinary talk, ordinary speech. We try not to use a lot of jargon, although we do use jargon. Oh, of course she's upset she's doing her fourth step. Well, what's the fourth step? You should do a tenth step on that. We, we have that kind of shorthand, but we try not to use a lot of jargon all the time. I was at a meeting once in Central California. I was driving and crazy, and I knew there was a meeting, and so I stopped. Sometimes for people like me, a meeting takes the edge off my crazy. And then I can function for another couple hours without being a danger to others. Uh, anyway, this guy got up and was sharing at a meeting, and he said, uh, day at a time, live and not live easy, does it first, things first. And then he sat down. <laughs> now, see, I can't argue with anything he said, but it was all jargon. He's using slogans. I don't know who he is. I don't know what's going on with him. I don't want to hide behind the proper phrases. What I've learned to do in meetings, and my sponsor told me this, speak simply and directly about real things. Use ordinary language. There's a power in that. And Bill presents himself to Dr. Silkworth, and it goes in that direction. A subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. 
Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. Allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. That's a real important description. Number two, crucial idea. Don't take the first drink. This isn't about moderate drinking. It's not about controlled drinking. It's not about learning how to drink. Alcoholism is a chronic progressive illness. And even if you haven't had a drink in years, don't take the first drink. What some of us figure is, I haven't had a drink in 10 years, I'm sure I'm cured. Don't take the first drink. It's as if you've never stopped drinking. One of my friends on the West Coast is a woman named Susan. Susan was a Girl Scout and did all the Girl Scout things, which to me seems extremely complicated. It's not easy being a Girl Scout, evidently. There's a lot of stuff you got to do. And she was out with a group of other little girls in the middle of nowhere. I guess they take Girl Scouts out to the middle of nowhere and, and uh, you know, survival of the fittest. I'm not sure what happens out there. Um, and this little girl was out there with her, and this little girl uh, took some peanut butter and put it in her mouth and stopped breathing! Well, emergency and screaming and ambulances and maybe a helicopter, and, and they got this little girl back to a, a hospital. Saved her life! Anaphylactic shock. Some people are allergic to peanut butter, some people are allergic to bee stings. Well, Susan was a pal of this little girl, and so Susan went to visit her and, and uh, after, and she said, what was going on? And the little girl said, well, when I was five years old, I knew I couldn't eat peanut butter because I was allergic to it, and I wondered if I would still be allergic to it when I was ten. Kind of alcoholic, don't you think? But what was very interesting is she waited to try it. She should have gone to an emergency room with a can of peanut butter and tried it there. Instead, she waited until she was on Girl Scout Jamboree. Maybe she has a little alcoholic tendency, I'm not sure. But it's very risky and very dangerous. Once you're a pickle, you can no longer be a cucumber. That's the way it was explained to me, and I believe it. You can no longer be a cucumber, even though occasionally my mind will say things like, why don't you have half a dozen of those? Bad choice. Don't take the first drink. Allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. And then Bill also hears about day at a time. And Bill starts cobbling together some stuff. Now, this is Dr. Silkworth's hit on Bill. So the leading, one of the leading contributors to this book. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here. Being allowed the privilege of telling his story to other patients here. 12-step call. AA jargon, that's a 12-step call. Carrying the message. Bill, 
has an experience in the hospital room where the room fills with light. There is kind of electricity. There's a jolt. Uh, he called it a hot flash. Somehow he had the experience of a power greater than himself. And he figures, this must be this God stuff I've heard people talked about a lot. Lots of people have sudden and dramatic experiences like that. It's a great big topic. Also, lots of us don't. I was listening to um, Jimmy Swaggart my last time in Louisiana. I didn't know he had his own station, uh, Jimmy Swaggart, all the time. And I was listening to Jimmy, and he was having a, a conversation. He wasn't preaching. He was having a conversation with two or three other people, and it really was very interesting. And, and it, was a, it was an exchange of views. And how do you know the Spirit is present? And what Jimmy said was, you know the Spirit is, is present when you are filled with this tremendous energy. And he was pretty sure that's the only time you know the Spirit is present. That's the only time the Spirit, the only time the Spirit is present. Now, see, I disagree with him on that. I think the Spirit is present in all kinds of ways. For some of us, it's sudden and dramatic. For a lot of us, it's a slow, gradual, educational variety. But I think the Spirit is very present then also. So you can have different points of view on this. But I found him very interesting to listen to. Dr. Bob will claim slow, slow educational variety, and that's been a lot of mine, too. But Bill, the room fills with light, and he does it. It's, it's so dramatic, and it's so sudden, and it's so powerful. The next morning, Dr. Silkworth comes by for, to, to visit, and Bill says, Doctor, do you think I'm going crazy? And Silkworth, always the careful physician paying attention to his patient, says, I don't know if you're going crazy. Let's watch. <laughs> Let's see. What's going on with you right now, Bill, is better than anything that's gone on in the past four years. Suddenly, you're not a pathetic, self-obsessed creep. Bill has been touched by something, and Bill wants to be of service now. Wanting to be of service doesn't mean you can be. <laughs> Some of us do great damage because we want to do so much good, but we don't know how to do this. And how do any of us learn? We learn by doing. We learn by making mistakes. I was somewhere in Southeast Asia, and I was talking to someone who taught language. And I said, what do you tell your students as they're learning a new language? And he says, I tell them to hurry up and make their first 10,000 mistakes. Because there'll be 10,000 mistakes after that too. But that's how we learn. It's trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. See what works, see what doesn't work. See what works, see what doesn't work. And Bill wants to be of service but doesn't know how to do this. He wants to rescue drunks. So, of course, he goes to bars. My experience is most drunks in bars don't want to get fixed. And they don't want to talk to anyone who's sober. If you're having a couple of social drinks, 
there is nothing more boring than talking to a sober person. Especially there is nothing more boring than talking to a sober person who claims to have seen God. It's just not interesting. But Bill tries it, and Bill tries it, and Bill tries it. And Dr. Silkworth, who's worked with a couple of thousand drunks, says, Bill, don't talk about the God stuff for a while. When you talk about God stuff like that, people think you're crazy. Talk about the disease of alcoholism, allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. Talk about that. Symptoms, patterns, blackouts, uh, personality changes, all of those things that make up alcoholism. The, the irresponsibility, the craziness, the, the cravings, the wildness, the bad behavior. Talk about that and share your story. Talk about your own story. Don't scare people. Talk about your own story. And Bill does that over and over and over again. And finally, he tries and tries and tries. No one's interested. No one's interested. And he comes home bitterly discouraged and tells his wife, Lois, I've been trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. And no one's sober. I'm a failure. And Lois said to him, Bill, you're still sober. This begins our understanding that the success